unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Granthamasha. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. Find a list of the defining books about India published in the last 75 years, and there's one book that will show up on list after list after list. Ramachandra Guha's magisterial India after Gandhi. For years, historians approached India as if history more or less ended with the partition of the subcontinent and the achievement of India's independence in 1947. Guha's India after Gandhi broke this mold and in so doing helped to define what a generation of students, scholars, and readers understands of India in the decades after independence. This year, Picador has published the third edition of India After Gandhi, which brings the book's narrative up to the present day with a new chapter on the post-2016 Modi era. To talk about his landmark book and some of the themes that it covers, I'm joined on the podcast today by Ram Guha. Ram is one of India's most celebrated historians. His books have covered such wide terrain as Mahatma Gandhi, cricket, and the environment. I am pleased to welcome him to the podcast for the very first time. Ram, it is very good to see you, and congratulations on the new edition. Thank you, Bala. So uh, there's a lot to talk about with the book, but before we get there, uh, let's talk a little bit about Gandhi, uh, somebody that you know and have studied uh, more than literally anybody else. You had an essay earlier this year for the Financial Times, and we'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, In that piece, you remarked that The way in which the BJP, the current ruling party in India, is using Gandhi's legacy to mobilize abroad is at distinct odds with how it and its followers are treating Mahatma Gandhi at home. I'm wondering if you could just elaborate on, you know, the disconnect that you see between these two approaches or these two faces. So, uh, Milan, um, Gandhi lived and died for Hindu-Muslim unity. When partition happened despite all his best efforts to prevent it, uh, he nonetheless resolved that uh, he would fast to bring about peace, particularly in the great cities of Delhi and Calcutta, which had large Muslim populations, and persuade the members of the Congress party, who were then in power, that even if Pakistan constituted itself as a Muslim homeland for Muslims, in which Hindus and Sikhs and Christians would have a kind of second-class status, in India... Religious affiliation would define would not define citizenship. Everyone would be equal, particularly the beleaguered Muslim minority. And I think that is something that has always run antithetical to the philosophy of the Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh, the RSS, which is we might say the mother organization of the BJP. And they have uh, in the past hostile towards Gandhi. After his death, they became ambivalent towards Gandhi. It was a member of the RSS who, as it turned out, killed Gandhi. And in uh, uh, and today, large sections of the BJP and the RSS retain that dislike for, for Gandhi, sometimes expressed overtly, sometimes in public. The Prime Minister Narendra Modi, on the other hand, is, uh, adopts an attitude of what we may call strategic ambivalence. Uh, he recognizes that Gandhi is a great figure abroad, that he's the Indian most recognized and admired, particularly in the United States, because of his influence on Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement. And of course... The friendship of uh, the United States and of Americans is something of great importance to India today in this complex uh, geopolitical world we live in. So Modi will invoke Gandhi uh, when he goes abroad, or at home he will take visiting leaders, including Donald Trump and eventually Yatanao to Gandhi's ashram in Ahmedabad. And occasionally he will praise Gandhi, but he'll be very selective in what he 
like Subhat Gandhi. So sanitation, for example, um, rural development, but never Hindu-Muslim harmony, which is the core of Gandhi's philosophy, uh, because he knows that that runs antithetical to the ideology of the ruling party and indeed of his own uh, upbringing in the RSS. So, but the rank and file of the BJP and the more extreme elements in what is called the Sang Pariwa, you know, right-wing vigilantes, and the kind of social media warriors, actually all detest Gandhi and every day on uh, every year on 30th January, uh, 30th January, which is the, year, uh, the day that Gandhi was shot in 1948, every, every 30th January, praise of his assassin Nathuram Gorse times on Twitter. So that is where we are today with regard to Gandhi and India. So, so just to follow up on this, the Indian Express broke an important story this week, a reporting that the new NCERT history textbooks in India have selectively deleted passages referring to the fact that uh, that Gandhi's pursuit of Hindu-Muslim unity, as you mentioned, provoked Hindu extremists, and that the RSS, of course, was subsequently banned after Gandhi's assassination. Uh, and 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 so, as a historian, as someone who is you know through your books, through your work, educated you know so many young people, is it possible that children growing up today in India or their children will have a very different view of Gandhi than say your generation or your children's generation? So, to some extent, that's already true, you know, uh, because um, majoritarianism is a fairly widespread uh, belief among Indians today, much more so than when I was growing up. So till the 1990s, most Indians believed that India was a land not for Hindus alone. Today, there are a large number of Indians. I mean, I can't say any reliable surveys, but a large number of Indians uh, I think that the Hindu faith must be the bedrock of our national identity. Many other Indians uh, dislike Gandhi for his nonviolence, which they see as effeminate, for his emphasis on compromise, on dialogue. They want a kind of hard-headed virility and masculinity to go with Indian nationhood. So, and at the same time, of course, uh, the popularity uh, of Gandhi and admiration for him is increasing abroad. So there's an interesting kind of disjunction between uh, hostility towards Gandhi at home and a growing admiration for Gandhi abroad, partly because of his philosophy of nonviolence, partly because of his religious pluralism, partly because of his early environmentalism, you know, which seems uh, extremely relevant in the age of climate change. So, uh, with regard, but... The textbooks are actually rather blatant because these are government textbooks which have eliminated any mention of the RSS, have eliminated that Godse was a member of an extremist, editor of an extremist Hindu newspaper, and above all, eliminated the sentences that pointed out that in the aftermath of partition, Gandhi was fasting to assure the Muslim and Christian minorities that they were safe in India. So that element of Gandhi's, shall we say, pursuit of truth and non-violence and interfaith harmony has been erased from the textbooks and the Indian Express did a good story and I hope, uh, I don't think those deletions will ever be restored so long as this government is in power but I think people will recognize that just as in the old days in communist countries we had the Stalinist falsification of history, under a ripening regime in India we have a Hindutva falsification of history. I, I, I want to 
turn to the true subject at hand, which is the third edition of your book, India After Gandhi, which really uh, sets the stage for what happened uh, after Gandhi's assassination. And, 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 you know, his legacy, of course, is there throughout the book, including the challenges to his legacy. You know, this book was published initially in 2007. It's, it's become, as I said in my introduction, the standard reference, I think, for most who are seeking to get a handle on the period from 1947 till today, uh, before coming to, to this new edition, because it, it really brings us up to the present, I, I want to ask you about the book's origin story. And, and you re recounted this very, very nicely in the, in the earlier edition. Uh, this was a book, in a sense, born out of happenstance uh, and a chance encounter with a book publisher named Peter Strauss. Just tell us a little bit about how you came to tackle, really, you know, one of the biggest subjects there is, which is the entire post-independence history of India. Absolutely, Bilal. So the books I wrote prior to India After Gandhi and the books I've written after the publishing of India After Gandhi were all because of they were self-directed. I wanted to write on the environment. I wanted to write on Gandhi. I wanted to write a social shift. But the history of post-independence India, the idea for writing that came to me unbidden from a visionary publisher in the UK who read an essay I had written in the scholarly historical journal, Past and Present, Past and Present, which was actually on the socialist of cricket. He read that essay, contacted me, met me in India, and asked me a series of questions, as, which were as follows. <clears throat> Is it true that um, India has just observed its 50th anniversary and its survival as a united and democratic country is counterintuitive? I said, yes. He said, is it true that the Indian economy is growing so that it will be taken more seriously, uh, you know, uh, in the portals of, uh, of the world? I said, yes. He said, is it true that Indian historians stopped in 1947? I said, yes. Uh, then he said, is it true that you enjoy archival research? I said, yes. Then he said, is it true that you uh, are not a stuffy historian writing academic jargon, but think that history is also a branch of literature that should reach out to the wider public? I said, yes. And then he said, given all your answers to my questions, why don't you write a history of independent India? And then I gave it some thought. I said, I'll call you after a few months. And uh, after a few months, I sent him a proposal. And then this book was, you know, researched and conceived of and written and read after. So I really owe it to Peter Strauss. You know, it's, it's, it's an example of, um, shall we say, uh, uh, you know, a publisher as an entrepreneur almost, you know, seeing an opening um, uh, in the market. And... Um, Finding someone who he thought would uh, possibly uh, have the have the have the, have the experience and capability to fill that opening. One last one one last thing about the origins of this book, Milan. You know, I've often reflected upon how this book happened, and I believe that I was also very lucky, not only in having this visionary publisher Peter Strauss approach me, but also in being asked to write this uh, when I was in my early forties, when I had. 15 years of solid academic experience and research in archival, uh, training in archival research behind me. And I was still young enough to tackle this complex subject. So at 35, I would have been too callow. And at 50, I'd have been too old and too tired. I mean, I now write very manageable niche books that are not more than 250 pages that are thematically very, uh, very restricted. So I think that's also an element of this, that, you know, uh, Peter Strauss had no idea how old uh, I was. You know, I might have been a 70-year-old or a 25-year-old, <laughs> but he caught me at just the right time. But, but, but Brahma, I remember from the first edition, I believe it was, in the prologue, uh, you mentioned a very different book idea, which I still think is a magnificent book idea. And if I remember correctly, it was about telling the story of India 
through basically life on one street, which is Rajput, uh, where people of, from all walks of life are coming to Delhi, are protesting, are contesting, are engaged in some kind of contentious politics or seeking something. Um, and, and so that, too, could have been an alternate history and is still out there for the taking. So, so except that, that street, Rajput, now renamed Kartarbiya Path, is not close to protesters. And protesters are kind of segregated in a... Uh, part of central Delhi called Jantar Mantar, but a history of India through protest. What kinds of people come to the national capital, as indeed come to the National Mall in Washington? You know, feminists, civil rights activists, environmentalists, uh, you know, a history of America through who is coming, not the congressmen and the senators, not the official representatives, but the protesters and activists of representatives of civil society who come to the a nation's capital to have their voice heard. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's a great book to be written, sure, about uh, protesters of different kinds coming to Delhi to try and seek an audience with the minister or the prime minister, trying to get the national media to cover what they're saying. Absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, the, one of the things that struck me uh, in this third edition is you say very explicitly that there were two motivations for, for doing this third edition, right? One is, as you get older, you're more aware of your mortality. Uh, you don't know whether you're going to have the ability or the motivation to update the book in the years to come. But, but, but there was a second motivation, which is that in the period between 2017, when the second edition was published, and now uh, the Republic has changed. And I just want to quote what you've written. You say the Republic of India has undergone transformative changes of a kind previously not experienced in so short a time, with the exception, perhaps, of the first formative years of the nation. Uh, give us a, just a bit of a snapshot. We'll obviously get into it in a moment. What are some of the constituent elements of this radical transformation? So um, these trans transformations have been economic, political, institutional, um, you know, uh, and in a sense, personal. So um, uh, the last edition ended, the second edition, went to press in September 2016. Two months after it went to press, uh, Narendra Modi demonetized high currency notes with a profound impact on the Indian economy. And in fact, the aftershocks have still not gone away. Then you had uh, his second electoral victory in 2019, uh, the second successive majority by a non-Congress government, which placed him alongside, uh, alongside Jawaharlal Nehru and Indira Gandhi as one of the three most influential and charismatic and authoritative prime minister in his, ministers in the history of independent India. Uh, then you had, of course, uh, the abrogation of the special rights of Kashmir. Uh, uh, and the denial of their special status uh, under Article 370, guaranteed to them under Article 370 of the Constitution. Then you had an attempt to kind of make Muslim second-class citizens through the Citizenship Amendment Act. Then you had, of course, the 2019, uh, then you had after that the COVID pandemic, which, of course, led its, uh, you know, had a deep impact on Indian society, institutions, economic growth, uh, as it did all over the world. Then you had the growing escalation of our border conflict with China, which had lain dormant since 1962. And now, once again, after half a century, Indian and Chinese troops were clashing in the high Himalaya and inflicting casualties on one another. You know? So I think all of this mandated a new initiative. Uh, now, some people believe that um, the BJP 
under Modi, which and it enjoys an impressive majority in parliament. It also is in power in many major states, particularly in northern and western India. Some people believe that they want to inaugurate a second republic. And if they get a third term next summer, they will actually try and rewrite the constitution. Now, I, that is, one can't say that, you know, the country has changed so much. But certainly, when you look at uh, the dominance of the BJP, the decline of the Congress, the growth of a personality cult around the Prime Minister, which is unprecedented, which actually exceeds the personality cult around Indira Gandhi, which, ex which existed in the 1970s. Uh, if you look at the reshaping of political discourse in a majoritarian direction, uh, if you look at the weakening of institutions such as the press, the judiciary, and the bureaucracy, dramatic changes have taken place in the last uh, half a dozen years, and hence I felt I had to update uh, uh, the book to take account of these, and I was already in my mid-60s, so I really don't know whether there'll be a fourth edition, or if there is, it'll probably have to be the work of a younger scholar, you know, <laughs> who's energetic enough to, uh, to, to do the work. I, I want to come back to the new chapter you've added, which recounts just these very events that you've just spoken about. It's a chapter, the 31st chapter, called Shock and Awe. And you begin the chapter with demonetization, right? So the surprise announcement by the prime minister that on November 8, 2016, at the stroke of midnight, 86% uh, of India's currency would no longer be a valid legal tender. Um, is this decision, do you think, emblematic of a sort of ethos that this version of the BJP led by this prime minister um, uh, has advanced? Yes, so I, I did kind of, uh, there were others, uh, dramatic decisions that followed in the years, subsequent years, the abrogation of Article 370, uh, uh, the raid on uh, Pakistan, terror camps in Pakistan, the first time Indian planes in peacetime had actually uh, crossed the border, you know, the abrupt lockdown uh, during the COVID pandemic. Uh, so that's his style. I mean, he, his style is that of, uh, there's a spectacular style. Narendra Modi seeks to impress, uh, sometimes seeks to intimidate, and certainly always seeks to overawe. The imprint of his personality is always there. And the BJP in the past opposed the cult of personality. They opposed what they called Vyakti Puja, the worship of an individual, because they argued that that was the special preserve of the Congress. Nehru presented himself as over and above the party, his party. Indira Gandhi presented herself as the embodiment of the nation. I mean, the slogan of the mid-70s was, Indira is India and India is Indira. So the BJP pushed back against this kind of uh, personality-driven politics and certainly under the prime ministership of Atal Bihari Vajpayee. Well, of course, they had a minority government. They, were not, they didn't have a majority government, but Vajpayee had a more collegial style. He empowered his cabinet ministers. He consulted the opposition. He didn't try and... Uh, browbeat the press. Uh, but under Narendra Modi, the BJP has adopted a much more muscular, dominant kind of nationalism centered around the projection of the personality of the prime minister. The prime minister, in his person, is said to represent the past, present, and future of the Indian nation. And cabinet ministers fall over themselves uh, in, uh, in issuing, uh, you know, and in writing articles, uh, you know, redolent with fawning praise of their leader. I mean, you will not, it's as if in, uh, in, in, in shall we say, the Times of London or the Guardian, you had Rishi Sunak's 
colleagues, cabinet colleagues writing weekly articles in praise of him. Now, you see, Sunak is a kind of an understated kind of figure. Now, Trump, who is more, cast more in Modi's charismatic uh, great man mold, would want, uh, would want his, his, his cabinet to do it, but it's not happening. It's not in the Washington, between 2017 and 2021. It's not the case that the Washington Post was carrying articles by the Secretary of State or the Secretary of Defense in place of Trump. But here, the cult is colossal, I'd say. And of course, it is broadcast to social media, through television, through the print, and above all, uh, through the WhatsApp uh, army of the BJP. So I think that is... Uh, an extraordinary transformation in the BJP and in Indian politics as a well. whole. So, so, so some of the things that you've just mentioned, I think for many analysts who observe India, whether from inside or outside, constitute this notion of democratic backsliding, right? Uh, and there's been a lot of pushback to this, right? And, and what some skeptics say, uh, including people who are not necessarily fans of this government, is what we're seeing today is essentially a reversion to the mean. And what they what they mean by that is that, look, India had a dominant party system under Mrs. Gandhi in the 1960s, 1970s. It centralized power. It eroded checks and balances. It governed in an arbitrary and capricious style. And what we are seeing post-2014 is essentially a return to a kind of equilibrium that, again, is, is determined by structural factors, namely the party system. Uh, and so I, I guess the question to you, Ram, is, you know, is the current period really all that different from what scholars have termed the second party system, right? Which was not the initial founding period under Nehru, but what came after? Yeah. No, there's some truth to that argument, except that there's been an intensification of dominance, partly because of the new technologies uh, of, of media and propaganda and surveillance and control available to the Modi regime. Uh, and partly uh, because uh, while Indira Gandhi was authoritarian, she was not majoritarian. She did not believe in a Hindu first India. And I have characterized Modi as Indira Gandhi on steroids. Now, I'm not, you know, I write, as you know, million very long books, maybe excessively long books. I'm not clever at uh, coining epigrams or cute phrases. But this is one I'm not ashamed of. Modi is Indira Gandhi on steroids, which means Indira Gandhi uh, destroyed the internal autonomy of her party. Indira, that the Congress party, it made it an extension of herself. Indira Gandhi was arrogant towards the opposition. Indira Gandhi sought to muzzle the press. Indira Gandhi tried to present herself as the embodiment of the nation. And Modi is doing all of that, but in a more intense, uh, systematic and organized way. So, yes, I mean, it's we've seen this before, but we're seeing it in a more dramatic uh, and I, in my view, dangerous fashion today. So, so I'm, uh, just to follow, partly, 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 because dangerous, partly for two reasons. One is, uh, you know, uh, because of the uh, new technologies of surveillance and propaganda that are available, and partly because of the majoritarian tendency. I mean, Indira Gandhi famously was assassinated because she refused to sack her Sikh security guards because she did not believe uh, that India was a nation in which minorities had to be suspected. So we are going through a very dangerous time uh, in the history of the Republic. I don't think it's permanent. I mean, historians are disastrous at prediction, but I don't think it's permanent. I think we will come out of it. It may take us another five or six years, and there will be some kind of reassertion of democratic pluralism. But one of the lessons of the regime of Indira Gandhi and of Modi uh, is that, and of the years in between Indira Gandhi and Modi, is that 
coalition governments at the center, where one party does not enjoy an overwhelming majority, are generally better for democratic functioning. They're certainly much better for federalism and for assuring the rights of the states. And they're possibly even better for economic growth. So I think if I was to advise an Indian voter uh, for, uh, with regard to next year's elections, I would say in that collective wisdom, don't give 350 seats to any party. And I think that's, that leads to arrogance, hubris, and uh, intolerance, as it did in the case of Indira Gandhi, and now in, it is doing in the case of Modi. Hey, Grant the Masha listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Masha, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. I mean, I think, you know, what some political scientists have have argued is that whether it was 1971 under Mrs. Gandhi, whether it was 1984 under her son, Rajiv Gandhi, whether it was 2014, the empowerment of a single party brute majority allows for the kind of arbitrary and discretionary use of power that demonetization kind of embodies, right? Um, and where coalition politics obviously introduces a certain number of veto points. It's hard to see how demonetization would have been carried out uh, in the coalition era. And in fact, on the economic side, I think people have shown that actually uh, India's best rates of growth have, have typically taken uh, place when you have had uh, you know, coalitions in, in, in power. I just want to pick up on one thing that you mentioned earlier, which is institutions. Um, uh, w- you know, we saw during the second dominant party system, independent institutions, whether it was the courts, whether it was investigative agencies, whether it was the Election Commission of India, um, you know, crawl when they were asked to bend, right, to, to, to use the famous, uh, famous line. And, and, and many people see, uh, suggest that we're seeing that today. And I think what's puzzling to them is that, it's not in every case a clear example of overt executive interference, but instead institutions and leaders of institutions themselves deciding to pay deference to the executive or to abdicate authority. Are you surprised? For instance, let's take an example you mentioned, Article 370. The Supreme Court still has not heard the constitutional challenge to that. Electoral bonds, uh, they have still not uh, taken up a case which was first brought before them before the 2019 elections. Does that surprise you? Uh, it doesn't. It disappoints me, but doesn't entirely surprise me, because as you say, uh, we've seen this before, that institutions uh, did not push back. You know, individuals were silent, who headed these institutions, were silent or complicit. Uh, but it's reached a new level with the BJP. So the Supreme Court is timid. The Election Commit- Commission is timid. But the CBI and the Enforcement Direct- the Directorate are vindictive and vicious to an extent against opposition leaders uh, to an extent we have never seen before. The press is supine. You know, absolute, it, it was censored during the emergency, but now it is voluntarily supine, except for the odd newspaper, usually located outside Delhi or, or you know, some brave websites. So the collapse has been complete. And one, one, something else, which is a parallel with the emergency, which I'd like to mention, which is, uh, uh, how do I put it? The complicity of 
the entrepreneurial class and our celebrity sportsmen and film stars. Now, again, here yeah, it's a striking contrast with the United States. You know, the United States, uh, if there are blatant acts of in injustice and discrimination against minorities, you'd find the odd sports person, the film star, and even entrepreneurs speaking out. Here, they're all unanimous in their praise of Modi. I mean, and actually, this has happened in UNC too. J.R.D. Tata, uh, the great icon of Indian business, praised the emergency, emergency for bringing discipline to the industrial sector. And I think that is, I mean, it's a mark of, uh, I should say, the lack of moral fiber of India's elite. Whether the elite that staffs public institutions or the elite that exists in spaces like business, sports, and film. I think there may be a larger cultural explanation for this lack of moral fiber, this lack of spinelessness. And I don't want to go down that route here. You know, I think it it uh, uh, it demands more careful and close attention. But if you look at, uh, you know, Indians through history and the compromises they made with power, particularly Indians who could do otherwise, who had the capacity uh, to influence people to choose the right path. I mean, Gandhi and Nehru were really, and Ambedkar were really aberrations in that sense. You know, complicity with power has been a feature of the Indian elite through large uh, periods of our history. And, what we're living through today is no exception. So I want to come back to the media. And you mentioned the supine media today. In the 2007 book, you famously called India a 50-50 democracy, right? And and the, the way that I would summarize it is that India is a place with robust electoral competition, alternation of power, but shrinking space for democracy between elections. But when you fast forward to today, uh, you now write that India is more like a 30-70 democracy where there have been several democratic institutions from political parties to parliament, civil services, judiciary, and the press, which have seen a decay or decline. And let me ask you about the media in particular. Um, again, the, 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 the narrative pushback that one gets from some people in India is, okay, people out there talk about declining press freedom, but Ram Guha is able to write critically of the government in the Telegraph. Uh, others are able to use uh, digital platforms to challenge the government. Uh, you know, the business standard, the Indian Express can write critical edits uh, of, 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 of the government. So, so tell us about the other side of the coin that skeptics don't acknowledge. Yeah. So, so I think uh, I am an example of someone who has an international reputation. Uh, another such example would be the writer Arundhati Roy, who can be even more blunt than me in her criticisms of the government. Uh, but we are kind of showpieces. You know, the norm is young journalists being persecuted. Young journalists within newspapers not being allowed to take difficult stories, being taken off the beat if they are, get too adversarial or too uh, document in detail some unpleasant facts. Uh, or even... People, young journalists put in jail. In Kashmir, for example, I know young journalists who have, whose only crime is to report fairly and fearlessly, who have been jailed under UAPA, the notorious UAPA, and been charged with terrorism. Uh, or you might have the withdrawal of advertisements to mainstream newspapers. Uh, so actually, the and, and, the, and particularly the Hindi language media, you know, it's the Hindi, some people would argue that in its vociferous support for the government and it's combined with a venomous hatred for Muslims expressed on primetime television, Hindi media is close to what 
Radio Rwanda was like, you know, in polarizing public opinion against um, against minorities. So the situation is very bleak. The odd exception should not blind us to what is the general tendency, which is of suppression of the media and the criminalizing of the media. You know, uh, I think, uh, and of course, uh, the English press, even when there are spaces of some freedom in the English press, like you mentioned, the business standard, I mean, forget individuals, but to talk about newspaper, uh, I think it's also partly uh, uh, because they know that, you know, very few people read English. But, you know, mainstream newspapers have to do what we call monkey balancing all the time. I mean, the first article after the Express's expose of, uh, you know, the, the deletions in the textbook about Gandhi, uh, they asked a BJP spokesperson to write who claimed that, you know, the whole of India is attacking Samarkar nowadays. He never addressed the question. He was given a brief write about this. He didn't mention that. Right. He talked about the glories of ancient Hindu civilization and they would just evade the question. So you can't, even the stacks are very heavily loaded in favor of the government, particularly if you are in northern India and particularly if your headquarters are in Delhi. Now, I'll give you one concrete example of the threats to the media. And that is a lot of the media houses, particularly the television media houses, shifted the headquarters from the capital to Noida, across the Jamana, which is in UP. And in UP, you know, the chief minister of UP, uh, you know, uh, is a rather ruthless man. And the media houses don't want thugs to come storming, uh, you know, uh, their offices. And that may be one of the reasons that they've collapsed, you know, because they know that the UP police will never stand for freedom of expression. The UP police is not interested in safeguarding the rights of minorities. It's a thug, it's a thuggish administration in the state of UP. Now they took the decision to go from Connaught Place and Bahadur Shah across the Jamuna because land was cheaper and office space was cheaper. But in the capital, they would at least have been protected because the eyes of the world would have been on them. But in UP, what happens? You know, someone will come, uh, a government will come and say, "Okay, we are cutting off your electricity unless you uh, report." stories favorable to the chief minister. These are the kind of under, under, understated threats that are there all the time. And in Bangalore, where I'm far away, the threats may be uh, somewhat uh, less obvious, uh, In uh, which is why the Deccan Herald, by the way, is now one of the most uh, uh, fearless uh, and uh, you know uh, objective newspapers that you can find. But the overall situation is bleak. So let me put it this way. We are, when it comes to press freedom, we are modestly better than Russia and Turkey, but substantially behind Norway, Sweden, the United States, Australia, Canada, etc. You know, I mean, we are not as bad as Turkey and Russia, but on the spectrum, we are closer to Turkey and Russia than we would to be to an advanced Western democracy. I mean, Ram, all of these things that we've been speaking of uh, constitute what you call in the book uh, the fourth major crisis since independence. This is something you touch on in the epilogue. Uh, and so before coming back to the present moment, just you know, tell our listeners, what are the other three crises you speak of so we can put the fourth one that you call a crisis in comparative context? So, uh, uh, Milan, uh, first of all, uh, this is the assessment of one historian. I'll meet a historian who is 65, who has spent his life studying this country, living in this country, traveling around this country, a historian who has beliefs but no party affiliation. You know, I'm a constitutional Democrat, but I, I'm not a, a driven by any party agenda. But still, it is my, my view that this is the fourth crisis. The first crisis was immediately after independence and partition, you know, that 
uh, a nation had to be built from the ruins amidst the backdrop of uh, civil war, the flight of refugees, uh, the recalcitrance of the princely states, the aftermath of the Second World War and the economic crisis, you know, uh, that was there, the Bengal famine and so on. So that was the first major crisis that the country faced. The second major crisis was the 1960s, when uh, India had uh, two wars with China and Pakistan uh, in 62 and 65, respectively, and also successive years of drought and famine, uh, where it appeared to Western observers that tens of millions of Indians might possibly die through starvation, and also a period in which two very, uh, uh, in which two prime ministers died, Nehru, and after him, his very capable successor, Lal Bahadur Shastri. So also a, a time of political crisis, of political uncertainty. So that was the second major crisis. The third major crisis we've already touched on is the emergency, uh, when you had the complete abrogation of democratic rights, the censorship of the press, the jailing of all opposition leaders, and the creation of a personality cult around the prime minister. Now, in different ways, through different means, uh, we were able as a nation to come out of these three crises. Uh, you know, uh, in 1952, we held our first general elections. Uh, a constitution was in place, and there was a period of relative political and social stability from then till the early 1960s. After the crisis of the two wars with China and Pakistan and starvation, you had the Green Revolution, you had the consolidation of, you know, uh, a kind of federal system with healthy multi-party competition, and we came out of it. Then you had the emergency, which seemed very dark to those of us who lived through it, and I was a college student, so I remember, I remember feeling absolutely despairing at that time too. And yet, uh, you know, Indira Gandhi mysteriously lifted the emergency, called fresh elections, was defeated by a... a a hastily put together coalition of opposition parties, and then we had the renewal of democratic institutions, the judiciary, the press, the election commission that you mentioned in your remarks. So we have come out of the first three crises, and very likely, the not, I would say we would come out of this fourth crisis, though the scars will remain for a very for a long time. You talk in the book about the different manifestations of the current crisis, right? So majoritarianism, decaying institutions, India's location in a very dangerous uh, neighborhood, and we've, we've sort of talked a bit about those. But there was a fourth one you mentioned that really caught my eye, which is the North-South divide, the divide between the northern and the southern states. And I, and I want to ask you about this one because it doesn't often get spoken about as a quote-unquote crisis in the same way as the others. What is it to you as somebody who lives in a southern state? but of course has spent quite a lot of time in Northern India. What is it about the North-South divide that you feel justifies this kind of crisis framing? Well, uh, uh, Milan, so if you look at economics, now in 19, this is hard for people to believe, but in, 1960, in the early 1960s, the per capita income of Uttar Pradesh was roughly the same as the per capita income of Tamil Nadu. So the last 50 odd years, if you take... Four states of North India, UP, Bihar, Rajasthan, and Madhya Pradesh on one side, and you take undivided Andhra Pradesh, Karnataka, Kerala, and Tamil Nadu on the other, the economic divergence has steadily grown. So, you know, they have remained stagnant, and the southern states have. Uh, 
progressed economically and particularly after economic liberalization. Yeah, I think the the statistic is something like the three richest Indian states are three times richer than the three poorest states uh, thereabouts. Absolutely. And of course, there, there are various reasons for this. One is uh, these are coastal states, the southern states. So they have a tradition of uh, migration, openness to the world, entrepreneurship, trade. So after liberalization, you know, much of this historical legacy helped them gain the benefits of liberalization. Some of the finest scientific institutions are in South India, including in my the town I currently live in, Bangalore. There's a greater tradition of religious pluralism. Islam came uh, with the traders, not with conquerors. Uh, you know, partition really didn't affect Southern India in the same way as it affected Northern India. Nor did the wars with Pakistan and China have any impact here. So, and social reform movements of the late 19th and early 20th centuries uh, in Kerala and Tamil Nadu, uh, which emphasized caste and gender equality, were very visible in Southern India and virtually absent in Northern India. And I think all of this has led to this divergence, which is not just economic. So the South is not just more economically dynamic. It's also less patriarchal, uh, more uh, welcoming of innovation and uh, knowledge creation, uh, less prone to savage Hindu-Muslim conflict of the sort that northern and western states have experienced. And I think all this has led to this, this divergence. Now, at, at the same time, in terms of population, the South is at a distinct disadvantage. And this disadvantage grows because their birth rates are slower than that in the law, because they've successfully managed the demographic transition. Uh, and in 2026, you may have a fresh redistricting of seats in which the northern states will get even more MPs because of the higher birth rates. So the more backward, the more patriarchal, uh, 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 you know, uh, states of India will have an even greater influence on Indian politics and governance and policy making. So what will that do to the future of the Republic? I mean, this is a question that I just raised at the end of the book. And I think it will be resolved in 2026 when the, whichever government is in power, it's likely to be Modi and the BJP, whichever government's in power may decide, as happened last time, that they'll kick the can down the road and keep the current freeze or current uh, allocation of parliamentary constituencies for another 20 years and then revisit afresh. Because if actually they go about reallocating seats based on population, I think there'll be uh, a major pushback from the South. Not civil war, but a serious attempt at Southern states forming some kind of union uh, to articulate their demands. And that will place major stresses on Indian unity and Indian federalism. I mean, it, it seems to me, Ram, that if you pull on several of the threads that you mentioned, uh, differential fertility rates, differential economic trajectories, differential political representation, differential migration patterns, where you see a lot of uh, Northerners who have tr moved to Southern uh, centers of industry and, and, and jobs uh, because they don't have similar opportunities in, in, in their home states, in their home cities, uh, whether it is debates over uh, fiscal transfers, the GST compensation, there's a whole hornet's nest of, of issues that at one level are interconnected. Um, 
uh, it, it strikes me, and I, I love your historian's perspective on this, is, is, is something as momentous as what led up to the 1956 States Reorganization Commission, where they had to finally take a call on whether they were going to uh, reorient uh, India states along linguistic boundaries, which of course they did. Um, you know, is there a parallel, do you think, in terms of the momentous nature of the issues today and then? Yes, except that the wise thing to do now uh, would be the reverse of what was done in 56. In 1956, the government went for reform, for reconstituting linguistic states. And I think that safeguarded Indian unity. Today, the wise thing to do in 2026 would be not to allocate more seats to the North proportionately, because I think that would create a major crisis. You mentioned migration, Milan. You know, uh, about 20 years ago, uh, there were probably two or three flights a week between Bangalore, which is the capital of Karnataka, where I live, and Lucknow, which is the capital of UP. There are now six or seven flights a day. And none of them are... Uh, of, of Maybe the flow of job seekers coming from Lucknow to Bangalore is nine, nine or ten times as many as the flow of job seekers going in the reverse direction. Right. And while the five... Uh, flights a day are partly people coming to seek jobs or at holiday time going back to see their parents and their mother or look for marriage partners or there's a family crisis. Now, what does that tell you? It's like, you know, it's like, um, you know, both people going to uh, Europe or the great migration uh, in America, post-war migration from the south to the north, you know. So uh, I think these are things that will pay, place a major stress on the union. And it's interesting, of course, that the BJP electorally dominates the north and is relatively weak uh, in the South, with the possible exception of my state of Karnataka. So I think it'll take a great deal of uh, sagacity and statesmanship uh, uh, to make sure that this does not get out of hand. You know, that there isn't, actually, there is, there are mutterings of secession at the present moment among some radical Southern intellectuals. It's not mainstream. It's not there in the dominant Southern parties. It's not there in the press. But then mutterings at the fringes, that how long can we subsidize the North? How long can we you know, go along with their, their backwardness, their patriarchy, their economic laggardness, their majoritarianism? Let's go our own way. You know, we can become like, um, if not South Korea, at least Vietnam or Indonesia. You know, this talk like this now going on. Now, I think, uh, I hope uh, that the leaders in Delhi are listening and are aware of the risks they face if they further punish the South in 2026 for performing better and punish them by proportionately allocating them even fewer seats in Parliament than they have now. So, so I just want to know, I don't know what will happen. I mean, it's, it's still three years away, but it is an emerging fault line which I thought I should flag it. No, I think it's very interesting. And, you know, uh, the architect of uh, the Central Vista Project, Bimal Patel, when asked about uh, the redesign of the new parliament building, has specifically talked about the need perhaps for a larger parliament, which is, you know, one compromise solution that to get out of this is you 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 you, you tinker with the overall numbers and you, you remove the cap at 543 and so on and so forth. Um, I, I want to end this conversation, Ron, by asking you a kind of broad question, uh, departing a bit from where, where, where we've been discussing, which is, 
you know, each of the chapters in India after Gandhi um, could be a genuine book <laughs> unto itself. In fact, uh, some of the areas you touch on, the emergency, the 62 war, turmoil in Kashmir, have been the preoccupation of some excellent books uh, but by, by historians, political scientists, and others. But I'd like to ask you about some of the themes, events, people in the book that you think are crying out for a greater evaluation, right? So there's students out there who are listening. What are some of the, again, themes, people, events that you discuss in the book you think are long overdue for a more serious and systematic historical examination? So the histories of states. So each of our states is as large, as complex, and has had as tumultuous and exciting history as a European country. So there's a young scholar a youngish scholar, compared to me young, uh, about your generation, Arup Jyoti Saikya, who's just written a wonderful history of Assam, which will come out um, soon, from 1937 to today. So we need similar histories, rigorously research histories of different states. We need many more biographies. We need study, studies of institutions, you know, a really good history of the election commission, of the comptroller, of the office of the comptroller and auditor general. Uh, and I must, if I may um, mention something, uh, uh, that emerged out of this book. While I was writing this book, I recognized precisely what you say, that I was in, at some level in writing a micro-history, uh, a macro-history, skimming the surface. Each of my chapters could be a book. Uh, some themes I hadn't even touched upon should be worthy of book-length studies. So with the entrepreneur Nanda Nilekani, I started the New India Foundation, which has now published more than 30 books. And I think, uh, and about 10 or 15 in progress. And now, of course, Nandan and I have handed it over to a different set of trustees, so we are on, no longer actively associated. But many historians, young historians in India and outside, are now taking to post-independence history. So that old prejudice against coming beyond 1947 uh, has gone away. And political scientists have also become more historically oriented. You know, in the old days, historians were what was called adopted a diachronic approach, and anthropologists and political scientists adopted what is, what is called a synchronic approach. You know, one slice of time. Well, that is changing. I think anthropologists are becoming more his, his, historical. The history of the tribal question, for example, since 1947. There's a lot of good work on Dalits and on Muslims, but a really good history of debates over the Adivasis from the Constituent Assembly till today would be a fantastic project. So there are many, many uh, exciting areas of research for sociologists, historians, political scientists, biographers. Um, I think, uh, I mean, India, as I say in my uh, in the first edition, uh, is often the most exasperating country in the world, but usually the most exciting and interesting, right? So I think there's so much uh, to do, and I think it's we must get over our obsession with the colonial period, and we are slowly getting over it. And many younger scholars are looking at the different dimensions of our complicated... Uh, anxious, controversy-filled, but always exciting journeys since independence. And I think uh, now when I began writing India after Gandhi, uh, I could, I really had to do the bulk of my own research. But shall we say five or ten years from now, uh, if someone was to write a substitute for India after Gandhi, a, a book that would transcend and supersede it, they would also have a great deal of secondary material to go by, you know, first-rate books and uh, research papers by by other scholars. So it's a it's an exciting field, it's a growing field, and may it deepen uh, and progress further. 
My guest on the show this week is the author and historian Ramachandra Guha. His uh, recently published the third edition of India After Gandhi, which remains the definitive look at India's post-independence history. Ram, it's uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for taking the time, and congratulations on the new edition. Thank you, Milan. Great, great having this conversation. Grant Abasha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun Times. This podcast is an HT Smartcast original and is available on htsmartcast.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we reference on this week's episode, visit our website, grantamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Nithya Lab. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Isabel Villegas is our executive producer. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production, brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.